Amen. Well, guys, I hope you got a Bible, and if so, would you make your way to Luke's Gospel? Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, is where we're going to be tonight. Wednesday nights, we're working through uh, the Scriptures, just chapters at a time. Tonight, we're only going to make a half chapter. We had kind of intended to do the whole thing, but it really feels like in many ways it's going to be just only be part of it. But we want you to be there with us. So hopefully you got a Bible. Uh, if not, there's Bibles around you with page numbers on the screen, so you can find yourself there rapidly. You can use an electronic device. You can do however you want it to work, but we're longing that you'd be in the Scriptures with us, and that this would be an evening that God would speak to you through His Word. That's our just joy for you guys as well who are joining us online and in our overflow. Hey, hope you have a Bible. Join us this evening, longing that God would speak to us in His Word and by His power. So let's take a moment and ask for that. Let's ask that God would take this moment and soften our hearts and He would give us ears to hear what He would say to us. Father, we thank You for this evening and we thank You for just the opportunity we have to spend time studying Your Word. God, help. We ask right now that you would work in the midst of this moment, that you would cause just us to be able to to hear from you and and that your work would be accomplished in us this evening. God, would you and your power just do what all that's needed to bring that to pass? We, We need that. We need you this evening. We need your help this evening. So we're asking right now for that, asking that you would just give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us. We pray that together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the most common questions we have these days, and it's not a new question, in fact, it's kind of an old question, which is, you know, how much longer do we have? Like, when is going to be the end? When is all that going to come to pass? It's a question that was asked all the way through the Scriptures, and we find ourselves here in Luke 21, and it's exactly the question that the disciples are going to ask. They're going to ask Jesus, like, When's the signs? I mean, how do we know? How is this whole thing going to play out? Because they're longing to see when the end's going to come. Now, I love that in one sense, it's such a a common question, but it meets us honestly where many of us are. So that's where we want to go this evening. And as we head towards it, it's worth just catching a little bit of the story that leads up to that, because there actually is probably a really powerful connection. It really begins with what I just want to say is a a little picture that draws us to see things from an eternal perspective or value that God puts on things. And so our chapter begins with a story that many of you guys might know. It's a story of what some of your Bibles will call it the the widow and the widow's mites. Notice how it begins. Verse 1 of chapter 21. He looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in their offerings for God, but she out of her poverty has put in all her livelihood that she had. It's a familiar story, perhaps. I mean, there Jesus is, and you can only just imagine it. He's at the temple, and he's just watching. It tells us he's observing. He's watching how people are interacting in this moment. And there's this widow who comes, and she puts in two mites. Now, a mite, it's not one of those terms that we use in our common vocabulary. A mite in those days was considered 
probably 1% of a day's wage or 1% of a denarius. Lots of, you know, kind of math we could do on that, but it kind of works its way into trying to figure out, some would say it's probably in the pennies or, or, or dimes. If, if we put it maybe higher, we could say maybe if you took a day's wage in those days, maybe kind of the equivalent of $100, you might say this is a couple bucks. I mean, it, it's not nothing, but it's not massively significant. I mean, here's this woman who comes, and, and in the scheme of things, and in, in, the, in the sense of, you know, amazing kind of offering, whatever, it's just, it's small in the midst of that. At the same moment, there's others putting in what would seem to be far more extravagant sums, and in the midst of that, but Jesus just gives us this perspective. He says in verse 3, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. There's a lot that goes behind this, a lot of places that we can go with that, but the thing that draws us to the simplest understanding is that which seems insignificant to men is eternally, incredibly valuable. I mean, Jesus looks at what she does, and and he kind of gives us a heavenly perspective and says, her gift was more than all these others. What she gave had far more significant value eternally than anything else any others had given. I mean, she comes and she gives this offering that from any kind of earthly metric is pretty small. I mean, nobody's ever going to put her name on the back of a pew or, or, or name a building after her like she gave $2. It was like, it was amazing. Like we could do so much with that $2. It, it wasn't that. From some kind of earthly value, it was a space of not looking on it and seeing anything as incredibly valuable. But from an eternal perspective, it's incredibly valuable. From this eternal perspective, God looks at this and says, hey, that's worthy of note. That's worthy of of something that from God's perspective has incredible reward. Now, there's a lot of reasons for it, and we won't spend a great amount of time on it. When we think about giving scripturally, there's a lot of things that give God, draws God's attention. The, the reason we give plays into that, the motive that's behind it, but sometimes even the cost, and that seems to be a little bit of what's happening there, that some are giving out, you know, just out of their abundance, it doesn't really cost them anything, and she gives something that costs her. Think of David's kind of request, I'm not going to give God something that doesn't cost me, and there is something of value behind that. All of those things are powerful, but the simple value right now is heaven values things different than we do. It's going to be quite a surprise. I think when we get there, we're going to have expectation that we think, okay, some people who seem to be so well-known or maybe, you know, we're great servants or great givers even in our world, and we think, okay, they're certainly going to have this, you know, huge space in eternity, and then we're going to meet people that we didn't even know. People that it's like, I didn't even, I mean, I never, and, and, and there's this widow who's giving $2, you know, in the midst of it. It's like, I never even saw you. And God's like, no, she gave something so much more significant than these others. And it brings eternal reward. Now, let that just kind of soak in for a moment because it lets us know that sometimes our values, as we look at the world, might be very different than the value that God places on things. Well, that plays right into the next part of the story. Verse 5, then as some spoke of the temple and how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Yeah, they're dealing with a temple that's there and, and it's coming destruction in the midst of that. 
what you need to understand is that this temple seemed massively significant. We could literally spend the rest of the evening talking about it, but the temple itself was amazing. I mean, a place that God had said would be the mark of his presence. Following the Babylonian captivity, they go back, the Jews go back, and they rebuild the temple. It's not that significant. But Herod comes on the scene, and about 19 years before the turn of the century, so 19 BC, he comes on and begins to offer to rebuild the temple, to kind of re-just invigorate it with life, and begins an 80-year project to do that. And it's amazing. I mean, the, the, the amount of gold and silver and jewels that are poured into this place, it becomes literally one of the just largest wonders of the world. In the history of mankind, probably per square foot, it becomes one of the most expensive investments in history. Herodian architecture is beyond just description. His ability to, to, to design and build things stands across the Middle East even to this day, and this became one of his crowning achievements, kind of an 80-year project that became a wonder of the world. It was beautiful, glistening white marble, gold, jewels everywhere. People who said they just crowned, you know, walked in the city, it just, it shocked them in, in its amazing beauty and its amazing status. And that's exactly what's happening here. I mean, they're just looking there and they're looking at this thing that seems so massive, so amazing. And they kind of draw Jesus's attention to it. And he just looks and says, you know what? There's not anything you see that's not going away. And in fact, it's going to go away very soon. That which seems so significant, eternally, was just a blip. Hey, interesting part of the story. I told you that it's an 80-year project. So he starts it in 19 BC. It goes to 63 AD that Herod just is rebuilding the temple. The final remodel finishes in 63 AD. And if you know a little bit about history, it lasts seven years. 70 AD, Rome comes with Titus Vespadian and just destroys it. So that literally this prophecy is fulfilled. Every single stone is overturned. Everything's destroyed. And there's just something in that story that's worth your kind of consideration. I mean, if you're looking at one of the most expensive, most, one of the most extravagant, you know, kind of, you know, monuments to human wisdom and ability, which Herod was kind of trying to show off in the midst of this. And it's just, it's gone like that. And Jesus, when he sees it, he kind of looks at it that way. And so they're so impressed. The disciples are impressed with this whole thing. But Jesus just says, it's not that impressive. It's all going to go away. Like, I don't know what you see. I see it entirely differently. These two stories stand side by side to show us one more time. God has a different value system than we sometimes value. Things that we think are really significant, God's like, eh, not so much. Things that we might miss, he's like, that's amazing. That's eternally significant. Now, I don't know what that does for you, but I know what it did for the disciples. It made them long for that day and even wonder, so when are we going to see that? So, so when is all that going to happen? I mean, when do we see that kingdom come? And so they asked Jesus the question. Verse 7, so they asked him, saying, teacher, but when <laughs> will all these things be? And what will the sign be when these things are about to take place? both the expectation of his kingdom, but also the judgment that would come upon Jerusalem. Lord, how are we going to know? I mean, how are we going to know when all of that is going to happen? And Jesus gives them, and he gives us an answer. It's the same answer, by the way, that is just more articulated in Matthew 24. 
and Mark chapter 13, both those chapters kind of give us a few more details than it's found here in Luke, but we're going to stay here in Luke and kind of notice what he's going to tell us, is he's going to give us things that really indicate, really would be the things they're asking, what will be the signs, what will be the ways that we can recognize the end is coming. And so he gives them a few things. Tells us first in verse 8, he said, take heed that, you, that you're not deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. As he's explaining what would come and, and the things that would kind of mark that coming, he gives us things that are problematic things that he tells us, hey, when these happen, that's not the end but they are the things that are going to lead towards the end, things that would be growing in both intensity and in reality, more of that which we'll talk about in the moment. But this first one is important. This is one of the things that you need to know is that from this point until my coming, basically, there's going to be a lot of lies. There's going to be a lot of deceptions. There's going to be a lot of people that come and they're going to say, hey, either that I'm the Christ or I know when this is happening, and follow after me, and I just want to tell you that's true. History has been replete with it. I found myself just thinking, even over the last 30 years, the number of places that have cropped up from Y2K to 88 Reasons Why Jesus Was Coming Back in 1988 to, you know, Judgment Day in 2011 to 2012. I mean, it has happened over and over and over where people will come and say, hey, we know, we know when this is happening. We know what's going to take place. And, And Jesus just says, hey, when they come, and they tell you either that they are the Messiah or they know, hey, don't believe it. It would be great advice if we just would begin there and saying, hey, that's part of this. And this being laid out to us, it's still going to be part. It's an expectation that tells us it would be one of the signs that would lead towards his coming. Then he adds to it in verse 9. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. He said, the old nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Jesus gazes over history and that knowledge he has. He says, there are going to be wars. There's going to be lots of wars. And when those things happen, when these things happen, don't be terrified in the midst of that. We live in a space that for most of us, that's not been the reality of our lives. And it's hard to even understand how unearthing that is, thinking through World War One, or World War Two, or, or wars between nations, and how everything can, can become tumultuous, and, and everything that can be a part of that. And Jesus says, that's going to be a part of this. From the, my, this moment now till my coming, history is going to be marked by wars and commotions. Hey, expect it. Nations against nations, turmoils that are going to happen in the midst of that. On top of that, he says there's going to be calamities. Verse 11, There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and signs from the heavens. There's going to be a lot of things. They're not wars, but they are calamities that fall at. Things like earthquakes or or tornadoes or those kinds of things that we would say, hey, these are devastating kind of natural things. There are going to be famines that sometimes are, are, again, kind of natural, but more often than not, they're caused by men who somehow just power kind of corrupted. He says there's going to be pestilences, there's going to be things like plagues, things like COVID-19, if I could, kind of falling into that category, things that the world's going to be moved by. He says, hey, this is the reality. This is going to mark the world 
till I come. Wow. So he's telling us these things, telling us all that's going to happen, but then he adds one more. It says in verse 12, But before all these things, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. He says it's also going to be marked by persecutions, that these things are going to be there. They're going to just stand against you, the persecution of the church, just Christians being persecuted in the world. He says that's going to be a part of the reality. Now, I think about that, and I think about that as a part of it, and maybe that's one we need to think about for a moment, maybe both because of its maybe significance in our day, but also because here in Luke, that's where he's going to go a little bit deeper. So let's think about that for a moment. So he's letting us know, hey, persecutions are going to come. He says, I need you to know, hey, all, these things are happening, and they're going to lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, saying in a simple way, those persecutions are going to be religious, that there are times they're going to deliver you up to religious authorities, kind of synagogues in that sense. Other times they're going to be political and, and, and secular in that sense, casting you into prisons. And history from Jesus' time to this day has been marked by that. Persecutions that's marked the world, that's shattered the world in, in so many ways, been a part of that. And he says, I just need you to understand Hey, that's not surprising to us. In fact, this is surely not the only place the Bible tells us this. Jesus told his disciples often, the way they treated me is the way they're going to treat you. Don't expect this world to treat you somehow better than it treated me. He says, you're going to go through the same world. As they treated me, they're going to treat you. In fact, persecution has become a thing biblically that's actually a promise. It tells us in Titus that all those who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a promise, it's a reality that's a part of it, and here Jesus warns us about it. But as he does so, he tells us this. But, verse 13, it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. The interesting thing about persecution is it's actually never harmed the true church of God. Yeah, over the last 2,000 years, at times when persecution moves in on any place, it does have a, sometimes a, a weaning effect. People who are kind of on the peripheral move away, but it's always done good. <laughs> I mean, the church has always thrived in that sense, both in, in, in just being, just growing in Christ, but even being a representative. It's said often in the mission world that, uh, you know, the martyrs are, are the seed of the church, that the blood of the martyrs, that those who laid down their lives in many ways paved the way for the gospel to go forward. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get persecuted, but that's going to work for good. It's going to give you an opportunity to shine for Jesus. It's going to give you an opportunity to tell other people why you believe what you believe. It's going to give you opportunities that you did not have before this moment. Now, that's exciting. I mean, really, it should be in that sense, even in that moment, but it's also a little bit terrifying. Like, well, how am I going to do that? Like, how do I be the one that's going to represent Jesus? I mean, even as he said, sometimes even before kings and rulers. Well, he promises us. Verse 14, therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and a wisdom which all of your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Hey, this isn't a promise to, to, to lazy preachers. It has sometimes been pointed out that not to prepare your message. No, we are to do that. 
but it is a promise to those of us who say, I don't, what if I don't know how to answer in that moment? I mean, how would I do that? And I could just tell you again, very simply, hey, this promise has been fulfilled over and over, that Christians have found themselves in difficult spaces, found with somehow the right words to say. I mean, just in that moment where all of a sudden where, where push comes to shove, they remember verses they've never even thought they remember before. And I know this has happened for some of you. I mean, in some difficult space, all of a sudden you found yourself pressed, and then it's like, I didn't even know I knew that verse. There it was, like right there in my head. And I'm just like, well, you know, the Bible says, you know, and, and Jesus says, and, and it's like there's this promise that he says, hey, I'll be with you in those moments. Don't, don't, don't be terrified of this. Don't be terrified of what that's going to do, but just know this, that persecution will work for good. Persecution will work for opportunity for the gospel. It'll give opportunity for people to hear why we believe and, and what we believe. And so he says, hey, trust it. I'm going, to be, I'm going to meet you in those moments. But then he tells us in verse 16, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives, and friends and they will put some of you to death. He says, as you think about this, this idea of persecution, one of the things that makes it so hard is it becomes a place of betrayal. It becomes a place where people betray, where people mock and, and make fun of and, and turn people in, where families are split. And, and what an incredibly difficult space that that becomes. What a difficult space that becomes in the midst of persecution. I just pointed out in kind of passing, but I, we, we'll come back to it and talk about it just more in a moment. I think about where we are as a, as a people and, and things that seem to be moving that way in our culture. And, and I think through even this last year, I mean, one of the, the really almost terrifying things, according to this verse, was in the midst of the whole COVID kind of things. And, and you guys saw it. It was on the news. Hey, it just it kept putting, uh, you know, putting on the news, like, here's a number you can call to turn in your neighbor's. Here's a number you can call to turn in your family. Like, betray somebody, you know, just, just do that. And, and it was like, well, that's how we do it. That's how this is found. And so much of what happened happened through that kind of means. And it's weird to kind of feel our culture moving that direction, to moving that the weight of it actually becomes through betrayal. And yet that's an incredibly hard thing. I, I know that not everybody in this room feels it or knows as well, but to be betrayed it is one of the harshest of things. When Judas betrayed Jesus, Jesus, it was named as one of the hardest things, and it becomes that, a place where somebody who you thought you could trust in turns you in and, and, and becomes your betrayer. But Jesus says that's what's coming. In fact, with it, he says in verse 17, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. He says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to become kind of that, the, the place where everybody's going to hate you because of Jesus' sake. This is the persecution that Jesus promises. This is what he says is coming. This is something that's been really the largest common theme throughout the last 2,000 years, but it's worth just pausing right now and just letting us just think it through. I know that I'm not saying anything that some of you don't feel or maybe could say better than I could say, and I wanted to be very clear and say this carefully. Boy, I'm not a prophet. I don't know where we're going. I can't tell you how this whole thing's going to work out, and I can't tell you where our world is going, but I can tell you this, that Jesus promises us that persecution is a part of what leads towards the end. I mean, the world is not going to get better and better and better, and everybody's going to get along. No, somehow he's telling us it's going to become worse and worse and worse, and so that this persecution that would come across believers would become kind of more common and even more real. 
Again, I don't know where that puts for us as a nation, but I think it's worth just, just thinking it through just for a moment. Because it's worth just kind of thinking through, okay, Jesus is speaking, and that reality so easily could become our reality. I know that you guys know where we are. I know that you understand probably some of the, the news. Maybe you watch it more than I do. I can't stomach a whole lot of it, just to be honest. Uh, but but just watching where our world is, it's a really terrifying thing. We think about things that are passing right now. We think about the Equality Act that passed through the, the House and is looking like it's going to be going before the Senate. And again, behind some of that stuff that you understand, there's this whole concept where people's choice, their, their choice of whether it's you know, LGBTQ or whether in the midst of that is now going to be lay, placed in a place where that will become kind of an equivalent of, of race or anything else to be treated that way. The ramifications of that are massively huge. Uh, what that would mean for us as a culture, what that would mean for the church, what that would mean for Christian institutions uh, in, in many ways, it's a scary reality where by just believing something different becomes a hate crime. And, and whether you're kind of aware of it or not, that's already happening. I mean, there are people that are losing their jobs. There are people that are, you know, moving in the midst of this. And we're looking at a culture that is very rapidly moving this direction. And I, again, I'm not trying to, you know, be a political commentator or talk to you about it on any side of anything else. I'm just thinking through what Jesus is saying. And it's interesting to think through, hey, this is exactly what he said we'd be facing. I mean, I mean, why would we think we're exempt from what so much of our world is going through? And if this is where it's going to in the end, and if we are getting closer and closer to Jesus' coming, then certainly things like this must certainly be the reality that we think through, I need to see it this way. I need to not be in this place where, you know, this totally surprises me. And maybe it doesn't you, but I do know that maybe for somebody I am. I mean, you're saying, man, I can't believe. I can't believe where our world is. I can't believe where our nation is and how quickly things might have changed from what you thought it was. And, and, and you find yourself thinking, how do I even kind of put this in some kind of box? Well, I just want to tell you, put it in the box that Jesus lays out. He's like, I'm telling you. I'm telling you, that's a world. I'm telling you, that's what's coming. I'm telling you, there's going to be persecution. Sometimes it'll be religious. Sometimes it'll be secular. One of the hard things it will be when people in the name of religion actually oppress other people, but we're really close to that where some will kind of side into it and say, hey, you know, God loves everybody, and if you just believe differently, it will become a place of incredible difficulty. I think about just all of this, and Jesus just tells us, okay, if that comes, be excited, because you might have an opportunity of time for Jesus that you didn't before. Be excited. I mean, that's kind of what he's telling us. Like, if that's a part of our reality, instead of just being dreading, like, this is terrible, this is like world-ending bad, he's like, no, this is an opportunity for testimony. This is an opportunity for, for people to see why we believe and what we believe and, and, and what's behind all of that. It can work incredibly good things, and he promises us to help us in that. He promises us to give us strength in that. But once more, he warns us. It's not really going to be fun. I mean, sometimes it'll be a place of betrayal and into the place that the whole world will look badly on us. Now, I, I found myself just thinking about that and just thinking through the promise of Jesus. And I just want to tell you, it has been a part of history. But he seems to anticipate that it's going to grow and maybe be more than it ever has. Where all nations will hate us because of Jesus. 
And I just, I find myself thinking, well, we haven't fully tasted that yet. I mean, we haven't fully tasted it to the place that there's not any safe space on planet Earth where, where, where just to be a Christian is to be almost anathema, and yet it seems to anticipate, hey, those are the days that are leading towards the end. And, and in the space of all that that is to call us into a place uh, of just, just anticipating that. So again, I'm not sure where that finds you. I'm not sure even how that lands, but I, I, I just feel a sense of just, exp- just telling you, hey, I, I think some of what I'm supposed to say tonight is, is just to call us to this, to call us towards, hey, you know, this is not uncommon. This is not unexpected. This isn't one of those things that we're going to be able to fix necessarily. It is a place where we would look on it and say, hey, that's exactly what I knew was going to be a part of this whole thing. And, and to kind of live in that expectation, not as a, someone who's dismal or, you know, just kind of miserable about the whole thing, but with an expectation that that's exactly the world that I thought was supposed to be happening. In fact, let's put it back into the list so we think about these and just these four things that Jesus is telling us. And the idea behind them is that he tells, hey, these are the kinds of things that they're going to increase both in intensity and, and, and just increase in, in, in just occurrence closer and closer to the end. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24, he specifically labels them birth pangs. He says, these things are like birth pangs, and that illustration all by itself is an incredibly powerful one. Some, but not all of you in this room, know what that's like, to to have that moment of, of, of heading towards having a child and trying to determine, so when's the baby coming? Like, when do we go to the doctor? When do we head to the hospital to have the baby? And, and if you've gone through that, you know there are these pains, and they start. And at first, they're far apart, and they're not that harder. And if you ask your doctor, so like, when do we go to the hospital? It's like, how close are they? And how strong are they? Because the closer you get to the birth of the baby, they're going to get stronger, and they're going to get closer. And they're going to get stronger, and they're going to get closer. And when it finally gets there, that's when you know, hey, it's time to head to the hospital. It's time to have the baby. Well, when Jesus gives us these things, he's saying these are that. Over the last 2,000 years, deceptions, wars, calamities, persecution, they have not been absent. They've been a big part of our history. Nevertheless, he lets us know, okay, if we're thinking about the coming of Jesus, then we should expect our world to be heading in this direction, where these things become more common and harder and more common and harder and more common and harder. So here's my question, and again, this just, it's, it's a bigger question than we have time to totally explore. Is that your expectation for world history? Is that the way that you see it? Because I'm just telling you, this is not Jesus just giving a theory. This is not just an opinion. He's telling us exactly how it's going to play out. And yet we live in a world where some people see it entirely differently. I mean, they look at things like deceptions and they're like, man, we're going to get this fixed. Like there's people are going to, you know, we got the internet now. And so people don't believe lies anymore. That's kind of a joke, but, um, you know, I mean, it's like, hey, we can, we can, nobody's going to fall for deceptions anymore, and it's like, no, it's, it's getting worse, that, that somehow, instead, time where we should have so much truth on our, on our side, people believe the craziest of things, and they believe them rapidly. We think about wars. Maybe you're one of those people like, man, we just about got this whole thing solved. I mean, peace treaties are great. We're about to have world peace. And I'm just telling you, hey, that's not a bad thing to pursue. I mean, to, to have peace treaties is not unbiblical nor ungodly. But there is something about a biblical mindset that looks and says, but it's not going to work. 
men, the, the hearts of mankind are, are inherently evil, and war is a part of what our culture is. It's a part of sin that's marked this world. So I don't have any expectation that somehow we're going to fix this whole thing, and nor am I going to be surprised at wars as they happen. It's like, that's the destruction. It's only going to get worse, especially in the end. And we think about calamities. We think about things like earthquakes and all that's happened in the midst of that. We think about famines, and we think about pestilences. We think about, let's just talk, you know, COVID-19 and what that looks like. And we live in this weird space where, you know, in part, some of our culture has almost said, hey, we're going to get smart enough to beat things like this. We're going to get smart enough to fix it. Just give us a little bit more time and a little bit more technology. We're going to get this. And I don't know where you fall in this, but I just want to tell you, that's not really the way the Bible says it's going to happen. I mean, I don't mean to bust anybody's bubble or give you, give you some kind of terror in the midst of it. At the same point, we should be able to look at it and go, you know what we've walked through? It's not like, okay, I'm glad we'll never see that kind of thing again. No, there is a sense that pestilences and, and fear and what that looks like, it would seem to be that that's going to become more and more the world. Not again in any way saying we encourage it or endorse it. That's none of that. But neither do we kind of find ourselves surprised or, or being moved down that and thinking, hey, I didn't think that's the way this was going to go. And add into that mixed persecution. That this place that we're not going to become the world's favorites. That, that, that Christianity is not going to be in this place of, of, of the world embracing us. It's no surprise as nations turn against that. And if all nations of the world turn against Christianity, can I just say it in a kindly, gentle way? That must certainly include the United States as well. If all nations are, are going are gonna, to are gonna hate us because of Jesus, that's not all nations, oh, except. That's all nations. That's all nations that will, will look upon who we are in Christ and say, hey, you're part of the problem. You're part of the problem that's making our world bad, and it's you that we need to lock up, and it's you that we need to, to deal with. I mean, that should not be somehow that we would look at it and think, that's not the way I thought this would go. Now, again, Jesus is very gracious, and who knows? Maybe we got another thousand years before Jesus comes back, and, and things will settle down, but it will continue to move this way. There's no sense that we're going to see any of these things fixed. There is a sense that we should say, hey, this is what our world looks like. And yet Jesus tells us these things because he says, I don't want you to get freaked out when those things happen. In fact, I like the way he says it back up and see it again in verse 9. He says, but when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. We could say it differently. Don't give in to fear. <laughs> don't give in to that. Don't let it control you. For these things must come to pass first. And the end's not going to come immediately. It's going to keep getting closer and closer till that moment. But don't be shocked. Don't be moved. Don't be in that place where these things somehow unearth you or knock you over. Because there is a sense that you were like, that's exactly what I thought was going to happen. That's exactly the world that I knew I lived in. And to, to be forewarned is, in that sense, to be forearmed. So I, I guess I even ask it this way. So I wonder what it would be for you to believe that. I wonder what it would be for you to say, okay, I, I, I see this, and, and even moving forward into that, lots of questions that I find myself asking, like what do we, how do we kind of live ready for this, and certainly questions that are worthy of our asking. But hopefully even tonight to say, okay, this is things that he's telling us so that when we think about the end, 
We live in an expectation that that's exactly how this is supposed to go, that this whole thing is going to play out that way. So put it back, okay? So we're watching all of chapter 21 right now, and we kind of begin with this eternal perspective, with this understanding that God sees things differently than we do, and and they've asked the question about the signs of the end and and how they know, hey, there's more on that in, in the chapter that we'll read next week. But right in the midst of this, he gives us incredibly powerful help. And this incredibly powerful place of just communicating to us the help that we need in the midst of what we know. And and I want you to hear it. So the first thing he tells us is in verse 18. He says, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. Not a hair of your head shall be lost. Guys, right now, if you are in Christ, can I tell you it to you this way? You are unshakably secure. You are unshakably secure because of who Jesus is. Now, this promise that Jesus gives of you not losing one hair of your head is not a promise of a charmed life. I mean, if you're paying attention in the midst of the chapter, he just told us they're going to persecute you. They're going to cast you into prisons. They're, I mean, people are going to betray you. And they're going to be people that hate you. Hey, that's, that's not a promise that that's not going to happen in the midst of this. But what it is is a promise is that who you really are cannot be taken by any of these things. That, that, that our identity in Christ and, and who we are in the midst of that is eternally and wonderfully and gloriously secure, that nothing can separate us from Christ. I love the way he gives it to us at the end of, of the book of Romans in chapter 8, longer section than we'll go through, but let me just give you a couple of the verses where he says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, here's what I'm persuaded, nothing, (laughs) like nothing could take us away from this. And there in Romans 8, he talks about war, he talks about swords, he talks about persecution. He says, all of these things could be a part of our life, but they can't really touch who we are. If you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's a sense that we've already won, that what we've invested into Christ is secure eternally, and this world can't rob it from us. It can't take us away from us. That there's not any sense that it could, could do anything that could harm or really take away what God has for us. I just want you to think about that. That's an incredibly powerful reality that, that would speak to us this moment, maybe in the midst of what I've tried to share this evening. Again, I don't know how clear it comes across. How in one sense, not the kind of message you'd really want to hear. I mean, like when you, so Jesus, how are we gonna know when you can come back? He's like, oh, it's gonna get worse than you could possibly imagine. It's gonna get really, really bad. There's gonna be wars and persecutions. It's like, I didn't know if I wanted to know all that. But then he just says, hey, don't, but don't worry. Right, don't let that get you because there is nothing in this world that can separate you from Christ. Not anything the world could throw at you could rob you from what you are and what he has in you. And there's something about just that security that carries us in the midst of of really sometimes difficult spaces and ought to be so, so that we could look at this and say, okay, I get it. Whatever happens, there's a a wonderful security that's given to us in Christ. I love that. I love that. And I hope you hear that. I hope nothing in that sense could move you from that because that's a promise that can carry us no matter what comes our way. But he adds to it this, he, he says it in one of my favorite verses in this chapter. He says in verse 19, by your patience, possess your souls. 
by your patience, possess your souls. The first thing that Jesus tells us is unmovable, unshakable. This is a promise that can't be taken from you, but it is a promise that must be fulfilled by you. He's inviting us into a space where he says, okay, here's how we handle the world in which we live in. Here's how we handle this fallen world. He says, you can, you can do that by your patience. Patience literally is, has the idea of endurance. It's the word hupomone in the Greek language. Some of you would recognize it. It has the idea of staying and remaining and not giving up. That's a little bit more of its, of its idea. It's feel like, hey, don't throw in the towel. Don't give up. Don't give in. Hang tough, hang tight, hang in the midst of that. He says, by your patience, that staying power, you can possess or fully enjoy and live in your soul. How do I even help you kind of get there? Um, There are some of you that kind of have this biblical understanding, and to that I just want to quickly explain In the Old Testament, there's this amazing place when they come into the land and when Joshua and Moses are leading in the land and they go through and they mark out the territory and they said, this is the borders of your territory. This is is your property. But then he says, basically, you're going to have to take it. I mean, it's yours, but you're going to have to occupy. You're going to have to press into the full measure of all that that is. And the sad reality is that for most of the nation of Israel, they never fully enjoyed all that God promised them. God promises them like this kind of amazing territory, but they end up failing to fully enjoy, fully reach the potential of all that God has. Well, it's kind of that metaphor that he's using here, that this idea that you could possess, that you could occupy all that God has for you, that you could fill out that, 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 that territory that's been marked and set aside for you. It, it, it's more than just... Um, not a promise of salvation. I mean, different translations translate this differently, and it's kind of an odd thing because it almost makes it sound like, hey, this is the only way you're saved, and that would just kind of go go against exactly what we just talked about. Instead, it's a promise of, of what's possible. It's a promise of saying, hey, in the midst of this fallen world, you could live differently. You could actually have everything that God has for you. You, you could fully possess all that you have. There's a, a great kind of prophecy given in the Old Testament and, and just says that they would possess their possessions, that they would just fully gain all that God would have for them. Again, I, I think about that and how it ties into this. And for me, it just speaks with an invitation. And it's an invitation that I'm giving to you. It's an invitation of saying, hey, there is a space of saying, hey, in the midst of a fallen world, there's a way to do this well. And that doing it well is through this thing of biblical patience or endurance. Now, as I say that, I don't know if it just lands with you, but I'm just going to tell you that's exciting for me and a little bit scary. It's a little bit scary because if I can just be altogether honest, patience is not my best subject. I don't know about anybody else, but just in the midst of it, I'm not the most patient of persons. I I just got to admit it. I I don't do well for long stoplights. I, you know, I I, I get places like, man, I'm just, I'm having a hard time weeding. And sometimes that plays out into my spiritual life as well. You know, there are times I want it just like that. I want things so quickly. I just want it to happen. And yet what Jesus is saying is just hang in there. Don't give up. 
Just, just stay. Just stay where I have. And if you can press into that, there is this invitation that says, hey, this is what I would have for you. This is, this is how we would enter into everything that God has for us, that we could possess all that he would have. And the way that we do that is holding fast to Jesus. We could use different metaphors. We could say, you know, it certainly would tie into the idea of abiding in Christ, to, to clinging to him, that say, okay, I'm going to stay tight to Jesus. I'm not going to give up, but I'm, I'm going to hold fast into the midst of that. And I suppose that's what I want to say as we kind of think this through this evening. See, I don't know where this lands for you. I don't know the idea of persecution or calamity and just recognizing this is not going to be a world that somehow fixes those things. It's going to certainly go the other direction. Sometimes, for, for some Christians, we can almost just get a, you know, bunker down, you know, hide in my cave, you know, wait till Jesus comes mentality. And that's not this. That's not this. This isn't just, you know, hey, I'm going to, you know, hide in my basement till Jesus comes. This is a place of saying, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to hold fast to Jesus. I'm going to live this life fully for him no matter what the cost, no matter what the consequences, whether that be persecution, whether that means the whole world hates me. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to pull back. I'm not going to step down from any space in the midst of that. There's a place of longing that in many ways we could step into that. I think about it for some of you, you're reading with us in the book of Acts, and there's this, you know, kind of similar kind of motif that persecution is just beginning to happen in the church, and Peter and John, they're arrested for it. Some of you are reading that even today, and, you know, in the midst of that, they, they begin to kind of press in upon them and say, hey, we you know what? It would all go well for you if you just stopped talking about Jesus. It would all go well for you if you would just stop telling people about Jesus. It would, it would just be, you know, it would all go away, and Peter in that incredible just beginning says, hey, you know what? If it's going to be obeying Jesus or you were taking Jesus, no matter the consequences. And they incredibly are given favor in that moment, but they step back into the church that evening and they pray and they have this great prayer for boldness. And they say, God, look on the threats, look upon everything that's happening and grant us boldness. Grant us that we with all favor can step into these moments and shine for you, that instead of being rebuffed and turned back from being followers of Jesus, that we could step into them and say, I want to be with just more boldness that. That's this. That's this idea that if we could say, God, I, I, want, to, I want to endure to the end. I want to step into this with an idea of, of victorious patience, knowing that my soul is secure in him, and yet the power that would be available there, it would carry me in this moment. And I don't know about you. I just know that's what I need right now. That, you know, the other stuff, it's not in my power. I, I don't control the wars. I don't control the calamities. I don't control the persecution, nor am I supposed to. I just know that that's a part of the world. But this is in my part. My patience, my being able to say, God, I'm in. I'm not quitting. I'm, I'm going to run my race with endurance. That's the, kind of what it says in, in Hebrews chapter 12, which, by the way, that endurance is this word. It's the same Greek word that's translated in Hebrews 12, endurance, here translated patience. I'm going to run my race with endurance. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to throw in the towel. I'm not going to go and hide. I'm not going to, you know, cow. I'm not going to be, okay, I'm just going to stop talking about Jesus. I'm going to keep talking about Jesus 
no matter what the consequences are. And that's kind of what he's looking for, and that's what I want to give you this evening. That when we think about all that Jesus is telling us, he gives us something that is incredibly helpful in this moment and inviting us into that space. So as we wind up this evening, that's where I want to leave us. I want to leave us in a place where we see what's being laid out to us that Jesus is telling us honestly and truthfully about the world that we live in, honestly and truthfully about what's coming, but it should in that sense excite us. I mean, like, we're like, okay, this is what I knew was going to happen. This is like, we must be closer to the end. But at the same moment, just a desire to say, God, I want to be that one through patience, through endurance. I possess what you have for my soul in this moment. So I want to lead you in prayer, and then we're going to close in worship, and let's just ask that God would draw us into that. Would you join me right now? Father, I thank you so much for who you are. I recognize right now that your understanding is perfect, and find myself often asking the same questions that the disciples asked. Lord, like, when is it happening? How much longer do we have? When are you coming? And your answers are incredibly profound. And I'll just be honest they're not always the answers I wanted to hear, but they're good. Thank you for telling us the truth. Thank you for telling us about the world that we live in that's so broken, and that brokenness is going to keep increasing. That wars, that deceptions, that calamities and persecution, they will continue, and they're going to get worse. But Jesus, you're coming back, and nothing this world could throw at us could rob us of that or rob us of you. Help us to know that. But Lord, in the midst of that, would you give us patience? Would you give us endurance? Lord, where there's any part of us that would want to give up, where I think through just kind of the chapters and acts that some of us were reading today, when they just told them, hey, just stop talking about Jesus, and it will be better for you. Lord, may that not be us that give in to that. May we not be those who say, fine, fine, whatever. May we with boldness just stand for you. And so I joined that prayer that's found in Acts 4. Would you look on the threats that our world just brings against us? And would you grant us boldness? Would you grant us boldness to step forward and step into all that you have for us? Would you help us to represent you well? God, may we take the moments that we have and that are coming as opportunities to shine for you well, that people could see our love for you and the reality we have for you, that the values that we have, that you have, are so different than the world has. God, may you help us to live that, see that, walk in it. God, I thank you for who you are and just ask for your help in this even right now. In Jesus' name, amen.